Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in in what part of the country? Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finnan. We have got a really dynamic show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be interviewing, speaking with Professor Rabbi Daniel Sperber from Barlon University. Just came out with a book called Vegetarianism, Vegetarian, let's try this one again, Vegetarianism, Ecology, and Business Ethics, Three Essays on Judaic Insights into Contemporary Concerns. And this is hot, especially here in Michigan, where sustainability has become a major buzzword in the Jewish community. The second half of the hour, we will be looking at insights into the portion of the week, which is Va'era, which can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6 and following. We've got wonderful Jewish music scattered throughout the show a dynamic Hasidic story at the end of it. So before we do anything else, let's bring on Professor Sperber to talk about vegetarianism, ecology, and business ethics. How are you today, Daniel? Oh, Hashem, very well. Good to have you. Thank you so much for, for coming on, and, and uh, we're looking forward to, to this interview. Okay, so it's three different topics in one book. So... Um, each one deserves a an entire interview, so we're going to have to condense them and uh, into our time allotted. So the, there's a lot of questions when it comes to Judaism and vegetarianism. The way I was raised if, it was is if you don't feel like eating meat, you don't have to eat meat. That's like that's fine. But there are all other other caveats also, like, for example, ain't simcha elevabasavriyayin. Really, when you want to celebrate the holiday, you have to have meat. So let, let's hear about your story. How is it that you're, you are a vegetarian, and how do you reconcile some of these uh, concerns? Well, first let me say that I've been a vegetarian since the age of seven or eight. That means getting on for over 75 years. (laughs) And uh, I started off because when my mother was very sick when I was a young man, she had TB and she was in Switzerland in a sanatorium. And I had to bring the chicken from a nearby neighbor. And my job was to 
open it up and to take out the inside and to strip off whatever you have to strip off. And I did this for some two years and I was disgusted by it. So <clears throat> that sort of turned me off eating. And when my mother came back from the hospital, eventually I said, from now on, I'm not eating meat and I'm not eating fish. That's a sort of, that was my personal story. Mm-hmm. Also, when I saw on Erev Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, how people prepared for the kaparot, and uh, just near our house, they used to take these chickens and whirl them over their head, and then then suddenly somebody would cut their throats and they would flap around for a while, although they were no longer alive, I think. That just strengthens my feeling. Now, as far as the sources are concerned, uh, it's been modified by later authorities who said that after Chulban Abayit, so that was never a halachic problem for me. On the other side, hand, when you look into the halachic aspects of shechita, etc., you find that eating meat is a very problematic issue. As long as it was a, a chicken in your back garden and you called for the shochet and he did it carefully, etc., it was okay. But now the food is mass-produced. It's um, the way it, the, 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 the animals are uh, transported is, is absolutely horrifying if anybody has ever seen it. And the mass production aspects of shrita means that there's virtually no prior examination. They just have a long line of sorts, a conveyor belt, and they sort of cut one after another, and the numerous halachic issues, which I've discussed in some detail in the first section, to show that probably a large percentage of um, meat that comes with a hechsher is probably not kosher, according to the halachic parameters in the Rishonim and the Achronim. And this has been recognized by some people, and uh, many Orthodox people have decided to become vegetarians, that's to say not to eat meat specifically, um, just for that reason, not for not for reasons of Tzar Baalei Chaim. Tzar mm-hmm. Chaim meaning causing pain to an animal. Yeah. So let me let me so let me say so then so would do you the state of the chickens as they go along the conveyor belt and sometimes their legs are broken etc etc okay so let me ask you then uh, Daniel Sperber do you can can uh, what's what I'm thinking of would you like try to convince somebody to become a vegetarian like yourself or would you condemn Somebody who eats meat. No, I don't condemn anybody. Quite the contrary. I would try to bring to their attention the facts as they are quite publicly known and suggest to them 
But firstly, if they feel very strongly about it, they should limit their, their eating meat to Shabbatot, because if you believe that that's, you know, on Shabbat you have to have a Salvadagim, okay, that would at least minimize the amount of meat eaten by Orthodox Jews. Uh, <clears throat> but I would never condemn people that eat meat. Okay, good to hear. So you're not you're not like the people for the ethical treatment of animals who would go like you know spray painting people's fur coats and this type of stuff. You wouldn't condone those type of actions either. Militant vegetarianism. No, but on the, on the other hand, when you do hear about the things that go on, I mean, there was a large um, company in the United States some years ago where they discovered that they were doing horrible things, I mean, that obviously has to be condemned, but not just by an Orthodox Jew, but by anybody. Indeed. What about, do you have, a, uh, uh, because of this, uh, the sustainability movement you have in America, you have a demand for humane processed meat. There's different, I'm not going to say names because they don't pay me and I'm not going to give them free advertising, but you have, <laughs> you course. have, con, you have concerns, both far, uh, uh, foreign and domestic, where there is an emphasis on humane treatment of the animals. There's usually, they are smaller, they're not doing thousands of animals per day, they're doing um, tens or hundreds of animals per day. So if you're not seeing, so you know, I can understand getting turned off. I have a, a daughter who's now in her mid thirties, who when she was 13, I was the one who organized Kaparot, which is this ritual in which we, we, uh, we handle live chickens and then they are processed. And we were short a person. And I asked my 13 year old daughter who was 13 at the time, if she would like to and do it and I'd pay her so much money and she was looking at the dollar signs and said, yeah, she could do that. And what was her job? Her job was to slit open the bottom of the chicken and pull out the guts. And she did not eat meat. She did not eat chicken for two years after that. It took her two years. And after two years, I saw her like saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So I can understand getting grossed out because it is pretty gross having to deal with warm body parts and, and that kind of stuff. It's I'm getting gross just talking about it and dealing with blood and that kind of stuff. So, but if you have a, uh, a concern, which is like as mirrors your concern and says, we understand that we should be more concerned too, because there, there is this prohibition in the Torah. It's not only just a prohibition for Jews, it's not one of the 613 commandments, but it's actually one of the seven Noahide commandments of not being cruel to animals. And so if we have these concerns that these corporations, these processes where they minimize the pain to animals and they're done in a most humane way, as shrita, as ritual slaughter is supposed to be. How would you feel about that, Professor Rabbi Daniel Sperber? I think it's a very positive um, development. And um, obviously, it means a minimization of the uh, eating of meat, because it's a much more, it becomes more expensive 
it's on a much smaller scale, which makes it more expensive, which means that less people will be benefiting from it, which for me is a very good thing. And so it serves two purposes from my point of view. It stresses the fact that one has to have concern for animal welfare. And secondly, it also is limiting the amount of animals that are being subjected to whatever they are going to be subjected to. <laughs> okay, cool. We have to move on again. Our guest is Professor Rabbi or Rabbi Professor Daniel Sperber who is a professor at Bar-Ilan University, written a book, Vegetarianism, Ecology, and Business Ethics. We're moving on to ecology, the next section of it, which ecology became a popular thing in the United States when I was 17 years old. So I had actually two choices as to a career, and they were very serious choices. One of them was to go into the rabbinate, and the other one was to go into ecological studies. And either way, somehow I was going to save the world. That was what I was, that was the, that's probably the goal of every 17 year old. And uh, have I saved the world? I hope by the time I'm 120, I've, at least I've saved one person, which is like saving an entire world. So ecology is, is became, became a big thing in mid seventies, it took on other terms. Now we're into the term, the word which is used is sustainability. And at Michigan state university, which is, has a huge agricultural school. You can actually get, we have somebody who's uh, attending at our, our center who is getting a master's in sustainability. So, but Jews have been involved with sustainability and ecology and looking out for the environment. It's written into the laws of our Torah. I mean, there's there's whole sections in the Talmud that talk about where you can say build a tannery, for example, in relation to a into a city, and the prohibition of not cutting down fruit trees. So talk talk about your your feeling of a need to write an essay on. Ecology, Professor Sperber. I'll tell you how it came about. Many, many years ago, in the early 60s, I came to Nepal as a, a back, back, a, what's a it called? A backpacker? Backpacker. And it was like a Ghanaian the major river going through Kathmandu, the, the capital of Kathmandu, the, um, you could drink the water. And I came back many, many years later, in about uh, 2000, on an international um, visit, which was dealing with uh, ecology. And the whole of Kathmandu was completely engulfed in horrible smog and your clothes smelt of oil, benzene or something. And uh, the, the river was a cesspool. So I became very aware of the fact that modernization industrialization and so on is ruining the planet and the whole areas that have been 
being made almost uninhabitable in parts of um, Russia, where the Black Sea uh, is horribly polluted, and it's the largest, uh, one of the largest sources of pure water, not salt water. So I got involved in this, and I became a member of a certain organization, and um, I just wanted to make it clear that the Torah does have very definite um, directives for us. And I, I know that many people now are thinking in ecological terms, but I wanted people to be clearly aware of the degree to which our rabbinic sources um, are very clear on the subject. Okay, could you shed some insights as to how, for an example, the rabbinic sources on, and environmentalism? Well, you mentioned them by yourself, yourselves. The question of building, where you can build, how much you can build, how close, close the tanneries can be to a city, and uh, cutting down trees, which trees can you cut down, you can't cut down fruit trees, and so on and so forth. There are numerous halachot throughout the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and Midrashim, which makes this very clear. And I tried to marshal the material and put it in some sort of an order. And I showed also that uh, later authorities like Rav Kuksetzal also made it very clear that this is a subject that has to be uh, dealt with in a practical sense. It's not enough to know that there are sources that uh, tell us what to do. We have to act on the on their behalf. Okay, so uh, this is this has been going on widely in America, in the states. Israel, in these type of matters, has always been like a step or two behind. So, where is Israel, Israeli society, Medinat Yisrael, as opposed to Eretz Yisrael? Where where are they up to? in these concepts of conservationism and, and uh, ecology, sustainability, what's going on in, in the, the state of Israel, Daniel Sperber? I think actually, actually we're fairly advanced. Uh, for instance, the Knesset building is, has been rendered ecologically clean. Sun. What? Sun. And um, just as an example... And they clean water, the rules on um, cutting down forests, the rules on using uh, what sort of uh, fuels you can use. I mean, we all have a long way to go. We, we're developing solar energy. We're... Okay. And, uh, I think that I, I have a clear, I have a clear, I have a clear vision of being in Jerusalem on a log boimer, and uh, we were staying in Harnof, which is up in the hills, and looking out from the Marpeset from the porch, out over the hills of of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and seeing these bonfires that were people they were they were burning everything, including tires and things that shouldn't be burned. It was like it looked pretty nox, no, noxious, actually. So that was uh, about uh, 30 years ago. So 
do people still burn tires on, say, like log bomber when they're building these bonfires? We it's not permitted. The degree to which uh, the, the police can control these things is a secondary question. Second question. Also, not all the population in Israel is Jewish, and as you probably know, there are some people who are willing to do us harm. They burn down trees. I lived near the Dead Sea, and recently there was a whole huge area of palm trees, date palms, which were completely burnt down. And that was done maliciously. It was intended to damage the Jewish uh, population in the area. Okay, understood. Okay, next section of the book deals with business ethics. Now, there are books that have been written by Judaic scholars over the last bunch of years that have been whole books and even whole sets of books. I have one book that deals, it's called Business Ethics, and it's eight volumes long. Jewish is Judaic political ethics, and in, in in Hebrew it's two volumes, and in English it's eight because English is a much longer language. But um, you have it as one one essay. So what did you what do you see as as the uh, salient points in Jewish business ethics, Professor Daniels Berber? Yeah, I gave a, a short bibliography of books that have written on the subject, and obviously there's a great deal of literature. But um, I was I was involved in an organization that was dealing with ethical investment. And there are large companies that do an enormous amount of damage. And there was a question of what degree can we make changes in their policy through through careful investment. After all, an investor has a right to sound his opinion on various occasions. And if he gets enough votes, then he can make changes. So that's one way of going about things. And um, the organization I was involved in was very active in this area. Okay. Could you elaborate further, please? It's a very complex issue because, as you know, the companies that the environment and to the atmosphere are usually very large companies which are involved in many different things. So some of the things that they do are very positive. Some of the things that they do are very negative. And therefore, to change their policy is not a simple thing. It's not a matter of trying to attack their economic basis. It's to try to affect their uh, their policy. Mm-hmm. We we have that problem here in America. You have the people that are like 
you know, bottom line is the most important thing versus those people who say that we need to protect our world because then in 50 years you'll have a world to, from which to make money. Um, there was a major pipeline which is uh, which goes across. Michigan is two peninsulas, and there's a strait in between the two peninsulas. And the uh, northern peninsula is very isolated, so they need to have like a pipeline for energy to get from the southern peninsula to the northern peninsula. So the old one is like it's above ground on the riverbed, and it's all, got all kinds of problems with it. So they're looking to make a new one underground under the river. So this is like. The people who are in pros of this is, well, this is going to spark economic growth and it's going to make the, you know, uh, what do we call it? Uh, it will make life better for people. And then you have the environmentalists who will say, well, it'll it'll ruin this population. It'll upset this type of a thing. Is there a happy median, Professor Sperber? Well, I think it's a very complex issue. And I, 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 I know that, for instance, in short-term policy, you're benefiting people by making all sorts of changes, like the Alaska pipeline, which is a, which 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 was disastrous in many ways from an ecological point of view, but it was absolutely essential from an economic point of view. So there is a there are certain basic inner conflicts always involved in the. You give short-term benefits and long-term disasters. And the question is whether governments or companies can think in long terms and think in terms of what will be in 30 years' time. And that would affect their policies and change their, their whole modes of production. Okay. Um, coming down to our final questions, we're running out of time in this segment. Okay. So somebody picks up a copy of Vegetarianism, Ecology, and Business Ethics. What do you want their takeaway to be? What should they, what should they walk away and say, I'm really glad this, I read this book because, fill in the blank, please. I think firstly, they should be aware of the problems. And I think that a lot of Orthodox Jews, certainly here in Israel, are not aware of the problems, not sufficiently aware of the problems, not sufficiently aware of the damage and the harm long-term and even short-term. And then there are certain guidelines which are suggested um, which they can think about and they don't have to take up everything, they can just decide to do one or two little things too, which will have a positive uh, impact. Okay, very so good. So person sorry. will find in this book an area in which he feels that he can do something good. That's wonderful. It's very noble. Thank you so much. This is your 30th uh, book published which uh, it's sort of like sounds like you're like sort of in like a certain cycle when it comes to writing books do you have number 31 already on the drawing board i have i have five or six on the board drawing board okay good we'll look forward <laughs> they to will see. come out they will come out 
We'll, we'll look forward to seeing them. So. Okay, that's <laughs> going to do it for us. Our guest today was Daniel Sperber, Professor Rabbi Daniel Sperber of, uh, of Bar-Ilan University. He's written a, a wonderful book called Vegetarianism, Ecology, and Business Ethics, Three Essays of Judaic Thought Insights into Contemporary Concerns. It is published by Urim, I believe, by Urim Publications, U-R-I-M. You could go on their website and uh, find it or find it at wherever one would procure their Jewish books. Uh, Professor Sperber, we want to thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sharing your knowledge and making us all a little bit smarter. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> okay. Take care. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state of the art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248 624 9800. That's 624 9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248 624 9800. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We got time for some music. This is Barry Weber, brand new. It's called Lahis Vadus. When we get together, when Mashiach comes, things are going to be really cool. And he's singing it in Hebrew and Yiddish, so let's listen. <laughs>
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. This song coming up next is one of those songs that you would call amazing. This is Andy Statman, no stranger, and Zev Feldman. Zev Feldman is playing, I couldn't tell what it was, if it was the, or it sounded like a cymbalone, if it is indeed a cymbalone. It might have been a vibraphone, but, which is a more modern instrument. And the song they're playing is called the Ternovka Shir, which means the song from Ternov. Let's hear it. Thank you. 
that was the Ternovka Sherm, Andy Statman and Dave Feldman. Up next, now for something completely different, this is Ayal Golan, who I will admit I've never heard of before, but maybe we'll hear from him again. This song is called Am Yisrael Chai, which has been making the rounds, various different incarnations lately. It means the people of Israel live. Let's listen. כולם יחזרו הביתה, נחכה להם למטה, הלוואי נדע בשורות טובות. כי עם הנצח לעולם לא מפחד, אפילו כשקשה לראות. כולם ביחד, אף אחד פה לא בודד, שישרפו המלחמות. עם ישראל
assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week's portion is the portion of Va'era, Gen- excuse me, Exodus. We're not done with Genesis. Exodus chapter 6 and 4 following. In it are seven of the ten plagues. The question begs itself. I hear you begging. Please, Rabbi, please answer this question. What do we need plagues? Why ten plagues? Just like, hello? Just like, it's, and we look, we see, how did the exodus happen? Is for all intents and purposes, for the point of uh, like personification of the Almighty, it's like the Almighty reached in and pulled the Jews out and just picked them up and moved them. God could have done that at the beginning of the portion, before the seven plagues of this week's portion and three plagues of next portion. Just get if it's time to go, it's time to go. What do you have to you have to afflict the Egyptians? The Egyptians were basically doing what they were instructed to do. Abraham was told when he was 75 years old, 400 years prior to this week's portion, the Jews are going to get the Torah, but they have a genetic defect. You, Abraham, are the child of an idolator. And your children will be the grandchildren of an idolator. And your grandchildren will be the great-grandchildren of an idolator. And so on and so forth. We need to make a disconnect between your progeny and your father, the idolator. we got to work at that genetic defect. And he offered him choices. And Abraham said, I'll go with the Egypt. That seems to be like the easiest choice. And Abraham and, and God said... They're going to get afflicted. And so the, for the better, what was better for the Jewish people, that now they could go and receive the Torah with a clean bill, you might say. You know, sometimes things have to happen. Listen, everybody who has an, a, uh, an operation, what do they do? The doc, they get sent home with pain pills because it hurts. But the operation was absolutely necessary. They had to cut something out. So what's the deal with the Egyptians? Why did it need why do we need to have 10 plagues? The Egyptians definitely had a freedom of choice as to how they could have acted. It would have been enough for the Jews to live in exile, meaning outside of Israel, in an environment where they did not have the freedom to go back to Israel, and that would have been because Israel at that point was a wasteland for all those hundreds of years, and there's no point in going back, and suffered just with the idea that we're in a country which is not ours. Where do I see such a thing as possible? Look at the United States. 
for the, the Jewish people, the United States is exile. And why are we here? For some reason, the Almighty deemed it necessary to make us more fit for the coming of the Messianic era, that we need to have the half the Jewish population of the world here in the United States. living in the suburbs or living in major metropolitan areas, going to universities, living middle class and better lives. Okay, there are people that are in the uh, below the poverty line, but the poverty that we suffer now in this country, people who are called poor in this country, 2,000 years ago would be considered noble people. Rabbi Yehuda, one of the richest people in all of Judea 2,000 years ago, lived in a house which was 32 feet by 32 feet. And it was called a palace. They didn't know from anymore. What do you need a bigger house for? What are you going to do with a bigger house? Okay, that's 32 by 32 on the top of my head. That's uh, uh, less than 1,000 square feet. Okay, that was called a palace. Okay, here in America, you live in a thousand square foot house. What is that? It's a shack. It's a bungalow. So even the poor person, comparably speaking, is doing very well. So we have, you can't call it actually a precedent because it's happening 3,000 years later, but the Egyptian exile could have been exactly the same way as the American exile. And it would have, how would it accomplish? I don't know. I don't, this is, that's, that's above my pay grade. Maybe it would have taken a little longer. Maybe it would have taken the same amount of time. I don't know. This is all suppositional. But the Egyptians got, got hit really hard by God. Why? Is because the Egyptians wanted to afflict the Jews. They wanted to have the Jews suffer. They made their lives miserable. 400 years of slavery, which is actually 210 years of slavery, which is actually uh, a little over 100 years of actual backbreaking labor, but that's a lot of, la- that's a lot of labor. And part of that was is they didn't accomplish anything. I thought growing up as a kid that the pyramids were made by the Jews. Nope, sorry. Anything the Jews made fell apart because that was part of the misery. That they couldn't look back and say, look what we accomplished in exile. They accomplished nothing. And this made the Egyptians very happy. So for this, God promised Abraham, listen, anybody who's going to afflict you, they're going to be afflicted. I'm going to come down hard on them. So Baruch Hashem in America, we we don't have afflictions. Is there anti-Semitism? Yes, there's anti-Semitism. Am I worried that Jewish Ferndale is going to have some kind of problem? No, I'm not worried. Do I have locks on my door? Yes. Do I have bulletproof doors? Yes, I do. That's mostly because of the Homeland Security Grant, which the United States was so kind to give me. They said, "Listen, you're a you're a synagogue. You need a you need a bulletproof door. Fine, give me a bulletproof door. I'll put it up. Looks nice. You never know it was bulletproof. It's just a door. 
the Egyptians needed these ten plagues such that when the Jews left, as God promised Abraham, as God told Moses in last week's portion, you're going to empty out Egypt. There's going to be nothing left. It'll be a shell. You will have elevated everything out of Egypt. When you leave, there'll be nothing left. Us now, when Mashiach comes, by this time the world will be uh, in a state of perfection with the Messiah. Let's hope it comes before the end of this commercial break that we have to take. Don't go away. we got this specific story coming up. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Shulfman, you're listening to the Jewish Hour. We're running out of time quick, so let's do this quick. Uh, you want to get in touch with me? RabbiFinman.com. There's all kinds of wonderful things at RabbiFinman.com, including the donations page, which we definitely need your help. And this week was an amazing week. We paid off in November that we had a little bit left. We paid off December. If we can pay off January this week, then I don't ask for an appeal for the rest of January. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hello. So go to RabbiFinman.com, hit the donations page. Let's get the, the show paid for, and uh, this way I get to tell a longer story because I just have a short story, and the story goes as follows. Year is 1989, Sydney, Australia. Rabbi, I think his name is Mendel Gutnick. Gutnick is for sure the, for the right name. I'm not sure if Mendel is the right name for the first name. He is the rabbi of the Mizrahi Synagogue in Sydney. At this point in Sydney, most synagogue rabbis are Chabad, Chabad rabbis. A couple has a baby, a girl, and they're going to name this girl in the synagogue on a Thursday by the reading of the Torah. There's one thing. When they name the baby's name, they say that we, we, there's this woman, who, and they say the Hebrew name of the woman, who gave birth to a girl, and we're calling this baby girl such and such. The mother never had a, a Hebrew name. Her parents never gave her a Hebrew name. So they didn't know what to do. So it's very easy. The person, all they have to do at that point is choose a Hebrew name. My wife had to do it, and her parents never named her a Hebrew name. So she chose <laughs> Chana, which is a similar for the, uh, the Hebrew translation of the word name, and means grace. Anne is actually, Anna is Chana, same name. It's just that Americans can't go Ch. So this woman's name was Jennifer. So they were telling her, you should name your, you should take the name Yehudas or something like that because it sounds close to Jet. It's like a, a J name, Judas, Judith, 
you know, this kind of stuff. She said, I don't like the name Judith. I like the name Bracha. So what did they do? They wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They sent a fax. Here is this woman, and her name is Jennifer, and she, she, she needs to have a Hebrew name. What name does the Rebbe suggest? That was the question. Monday went by. They're telling her, listen, you should really just do Judith. And she says, I don't want to do Judith. Tuesday went by. Wednesday went by. Thursday, they named the baby, and she said, my name is Bracha. Okay, so they named the baby. This woman, Bracha, had a baby, and they called his name such and such. After the ceremony, the rabbi went into his office, and he saw a fax from the Rebbe's office. It was a letter from the Rebbe. And it said... The woman's name should be Bracha because that's what she wants it to be. Okay? No one told the Rebbe that it had to be, that what this is what she wanted. This is what the Rebbe came up with. Rabbi Kutnick said, I felt like I was holding prophecy when I was looking at this fax. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.